Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is NASA Chair of the Library of Congress, Dr. Susan Schneider, AI specialist as well. Welcome to the Hello. show. Nice to be here. For the listeners, Dr. Susan Schneider is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Cognitive Science, as well as Director of the AI, Mind, and Society Group at the University of Connecticut. She writes about the nature of self and mind, especially from the vantage point of the issues of philosophy, AI, cognitive science, and astrobiology. Within philosophy, she works on both the computational nature of the brain and the metaphysical nature of the mind. Awesome. The topics you've written about most recently include radical brain enhancement, machine intelligence, the mind-body problem, consciousness, and the nature of persons. And her new book, due out in just a few days, is Artificial You, AI, and the Future of Your Mind which we will get to in the second half of the show. This is, I've been reading your book, and it is just amazing. Obviously, you've been doing this for your whole career. Tell me about your earliest career passions and inspirations and how you fell into AI. Well, I floated around in different disciplines. I went to UC Berkeley, and I majored in economics, of all things. Um, and I was inspired because I thought economic theory was so broad-ranging. Um, and then I moved to um, Eastern Europe and I lived actually in a communist country for a year. And there the teachers were actually banned from teaching um, Hungarians. It was in Hungary. Uh, and so they were allowed to teach Americans. What took um, you to Hungary? Was it an opportunity to teach? It was just um, an opportunity to live in a foreign country. And, you know, I wanted to do junior year abroad. And so the it was funny because, you know, it was the first time an Eastern Bloc country had American students, you know, there. And they were pretty nervous about who taught them. And they were like, well, we'll give them the kind of professors who already disagree with us because, you know, the Americans' brains are already infected with, you know, capitalist ideas anyway. <laughs> so, so it turned out that I ended up being taught by a bunch of people who were deeply interested in philosophy and obviously not Marx, but all sorts of philosophers like Michel Foucault, Frederick Nietzsche, and then sociologists like Irving Goffman. Well, that got me hooked. And so I went back to Berkeley. And um, even though I still was an economics major, um, I was able to, you know, take a few more philosophy classes. And then I ended up going to graduate school in philosophy. So that's how it all started. And I got interested in AI because the person who I worked with, I went to Rutgers University for my PhD, and um, it was and is one of the top philosophy PhD programs in the country. And I had the privilege of working with Jerry Fodor, who was the leading philosopher of mind at the time. He sadly passed on um, recently, and he was, ironically, the chief foe of a view called connectionism, which I think you might have heard of. It's now called deep learning. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. you see, I ended up teaching courses on the scope and limits of what would then be called deep learning systems. And my first book was a very technical monograph with MIT Press on the computational nature of the brain, where I urged that the brain is actually a hybrid system. It's, um, you know, and, and I did argue for the relevance of um, deep learning. And then I was sort of gratified that um, eventually deep learning did actually take off. 
it really, I mean, as we all know. Now you touched um, on something interesting, the, uh, possibly the analog versus digital native part of the brain. In your book, you bring up, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you talk about whether we're running a software. But, you know, the earliest computers were analog computers based on voltages and and analog circuits. Um, did your book discuss that? So my book didn't. I held a workshop on it once, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fascinating. And there are controversies, actually, about whether computation in the brain is indeed merely digital or if there might be some analog computations. Um, but in the new book, I talk about whether the mind is a program. So, you know, that's meant to be very broad ranging, like the program could be a classical system, it could be, you know, the type of program that you'd see, um, you know, a system like IBM's Watson um, running, you know, but obviously orders of magnitude more sophisticated, or it could be maybe a deep learning system. So those are the kind of issues um, that I'm interested in. And I actually critique the idea that the mind is programmed in the book. I argue that it's it, the mind isn't a program because if you think about what a program is, a program is actually an abstract thing. It's a series of instructions. Like it is. And so it's akin to an equation. And if you think about it, where's the number two located? Where <laughs> is any equation located? It doesn't have a location. It's no. an abstract entity, sort of like the abstract idea of justice. So how we, how we store information in the brain has got to be one of the leading uh, elements of inquiry, because if you don't understand how information is stored, you can't understand how a program can access it. Right? Um, that's the biggie. That's surely a biggie. But even at the armchair, I think that we can perhaps see that the mind isn't a program because you are a concrete being. You exist in space and time and your thoughts cause changes to happen in the world. So people and selves and minds, I believe, have an important concrete component and I think it's a sort of category mistake to think of them akin to equations, which are abstract. Right. So I, I use that point to undermine uh, the view that the mind is a program, even though um, I am a working cognitive scientist. And I do think that um, computational theories of the brain are extremely important to the study of the brain. But I think we need to be careful and not go from talking about the nature of the brain to talking about the nature of the mind because we don't know if the mind is the brain so you know that's where i pull in my background as a metaphysician someone who studies the fundamental nature of reality so in the book i talk about different theories of the nature of self and mind in the artificial you book artificial you ai and the future of your mind Yes. You make many references to science fiction. Science fiction sort of has set the stage, has whetted our appetite and sort of created a framework for how we think about robots and artificial intelligence. And there's lots of glorious references to uh, Star Wars, R2-D2, the movie <laughs> Her. Uh, if, if it's in there, I haven't found it yet. Uh, Ex Machina. And... You must have been really along along the way in your studies uh, a big science fiction fan. T 
Totally. <laughs> I wish I could sit around and read science fiction all the time. I need a reading vacation to catch up on all the new pieces. Yeah, I love science fiction. And I also, I don't just love the written word, but I also just love science fiction film. Like that film Interstellar is one oh, of my yeah. favorites. And I named my car after Hal from 2001 because <laughs> I have a Tesla. So it's I named it Hal um, uh, in honor of... Um, you know, 2001. So yeah, I love, um, sci-fi and I find that within the multidisciplinary community that I'm a part of, you know, we have, I mean, people who work on artificial intelligence, sure. They may be just artificial intelligence researchers, but they could also be philosophers. They could be psychologists. Um, people, I think there's a need for philosophy because there's a lot of ethical issues associated with uh, AI. And I find that the special nature of science fiction is it's the lingua franca for these issues. How much are they getting wrong? And how much is science fiction (laughs) getting right in your estimation? I mean, I understand the early years of science fiction in the 50s, 60s, 70s were pretty immature. But lately, how are we doing? Well, I don't know. That's I'm not an expert on every area of science fiction. But I will say that increasingly it seems given what I've read, that science fiction is increasingly becoming science fact in certain ways. Um, Some ways are frightening. I mean, for example, in the book, you know, I look at the possibility of conscious machines and there, I mean, I think that films and stories like iRobots. And and Westworld. Right. And Westworld. Oh, I love talking about Westworld. Um, You know, because it, it's people are familiar with this. They love those stories and they can immediately see some of the ethical implications. Mm-hmm. Should we create conscious AI? So it's a citing a science fiction story or film is a very quick way of getting the point across and then getting into the nitty gritty. So it's a good hook. Um, I want to get on. The, I want to get into all that in the second half of the show. I have some specific questions for you about the central themes of your book and consciousness and the singularity and control of artificial intelligence beings. But uh, first, we have to take a short commercial break. Folks, I'm chatting with uh, AI specialist and expert Dr. Susan Schneider of the University of Connecticut. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO, or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. Thanks. I'm chatting with uh, Dr. Susan Schneider, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Cognitive Science at UConn. So in your book... You talk about the two central themes or threads, consciousness and failing to think through the philosophical applications, as we were talking about, of artificial intelligence 
that could cause a failure of the whole thing to happen. But let's start with consciousness. One of the things that we talk about a lot in artificial intelligence is as artificial intelligence agents that we write in software code potentially become conscious, and we don't even know they could do that, there comes an inflection point where we have to treat the, the being differently and the being thinks of itself and thinks of us differently. What do we know about consciousness in humans and what do we expect we might be able to do with AI and software? Great question. And I'm sort of chuckling because we know so little about consciousness in humans. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, there are all kinds of important discussions right now in the field of neuroscience about what the neural basis of consciousness is. And, you know, there's some agreement in certain ways. I mean, we know the brainstem is super important to one's wakefulness, for example. Um, and we know that certain parts of the brain, you know, if they're damaged, can alter the shape of one's conscious experience. Is it the amygdala thing? Um, well, the amygdala is so important to fear processing. Um, mm. But, I mean, you know, there are so many candidates and there's so many intriguing debates right now that I'm not sure we're going to have an answer anytime soon. And really, that may tell us that Perhaps the best way to look at it is that, first of all, um, you know, as a philosopher, there's something somewhat mysterious going on. I mean, the nature of consciousness is, I think, one of the fundamental mysteries of the world, the universe. But also, it could be that consciousness is not something that happens in just one area or due to one part of the brain, but is a synergetic relationship between different components of the brain and, and, you know. You bring up in your book the idea, a couple of interesting ideas. One, that consciousness may be a fundamental process, a biological process tied to the mind and body and may not be instantiable in silicon? Yes. Um, I think that that possibility is a very real possibility, although the traditional rationale for it, which is associated with the work of John Searle, I don't sympathize with, but I think until we actually build AIs that are at a sophisticated level of intelligence and run tests on them, we just don't know whether only biological creatures could be conscious or not. I think it's an open empirical question, and um, I think there are many reasons why even if it turns out that we could, in principle, build conscious AI, the AI companies themselves may not even wish to do so or just may not even have the financial or technological capacity to do it. Yeah, you might want to steer clear of creating consciousness, even if you can, because then it becomes a being that you have to respect. And then we start dropping into Star Trek lore of the treatment of intelligent beings and data, Lieutenant Commander Data and... And, and the rights and privileges and of uh, an intelligent being. As soon as you turn that switch on, then you have a problem. I think you do. You have special moral responsibilities. And I think the public has been very sensitive to that. And there are already a lot of people within what we might call a robo-rights community that are very sensitive. And I think that's wonderful. Um, what I would caution against is assuming that just because we build a sophisticated system, a system that 
exhibit creativity or flexibly moves from one topic domain to the next, that we have created a conscious being. We might there be lapsing into a little bit too much we, science. We have to figure out uh, tests, too. We have to figure out how to tell whether the being is really conscious or whether it's lying to us, right? <laughs> um, I, there are all sorts of issues there. <laughs> Part of the book does talk about testing consciousness, and I have been working on a variety of, of different ways to test for machine consciousness. Um, I do think that there are two major issues there to consider. I mean, one issue is a sort of architectural issue. Would the architecture of the machine support consciousness? So, I mean, if you think about... Ooh, good um, question. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a, an important question. So, suppose you have an android that looks human, sort of like, you know, we see in science fiction. Um, and in fact, the Japanese are building very human-looking androids right now to take care of their aging elderly population. Mm -hmm. Well, even if it's human looking, it doesn't follow that it has an architecture which involves consciousness. I call it the cute and fluffy fallacy, um, you know, that we assume that something that, you know, looks like a living being is somehow conscious when it's a synthetic entity. I think we need to watch for that. So there are all kinds of scenarios where something just doesn't have the right sort of architecture. Um, I mean, just even if you think about the brain itself, I mean, most of our thinking is actually non-conscious computation. Only a very small um, group of our thoughts at any given time turn out to be conscious ones, accessible to working memory and attention. So if we can do so much with non-conscious computational machinery, why wouldn't AI need any conscious machinery at all? I mean, I consider it an open question. And in fact, if you look at systems, even now, like think about AlphaGo that beat the world Go champion, very impressive system. It didn't run algorithms that were akin to the type of heuristics humans use when they play Go. So even now we're seeing that these AI expert systems don't need to be human-like to blow us away. Uh, now you're edging on to the next topic, and that is extraterrestrial intelligence. You mentioned in your book that you've talked to NASA about how uh, some civilizations may have made the transition to post-biological intelligence. Oh, yeah. In fact, um, there are a lot of people in astrobiology who feel that way. Um, so, for example... NASA's former chief historian, Stephen Dick, has for years been writing amazing papers on this topic. And Paul Davies um, has a wonderful book that discusses this possibility. I mean, so many people, really, Seth Shostak. I was surprised when I started working in astrobiology how receptive people are to the idea that should we encounter alien intelligence, like sophisticated technological intelligence, it may be in the form of an artificial being. And biological and that, beings don't do very well traveling for hundreds of years between stars and vacuum and radiation. And so truly. that may be a, a Star Trek encapsulated truly. mythology that human biological human beings will travel in starships to the stars. It may, it may be the next generation. And that's something I wanted to get to before we run out of time. Uh, in my writings of science, in my writings of artificial intelligence and science fiction, 
I come across the notion often that artificial intelligence agents will be created in plurality external to us. But you, and then there's, there's competition and, and, and sociological issues and how we interact with them. But you bring up an interesting idea during, in the book, in your latest book, that it could be something quite different. It could be that artificial intelligent agents, artificial intelligent general intelligence could be implanted into our brains to augment us. And so you have a combination of an AI agent, a human being, and a personal consciousness. Yes, we could be cyborgs one day, and that could get super wonderful or super dystopian, depending upon AI regulation, how we support individuals who don't wish to enhance, and whether AI is even the right stuff to underlie conscious experience. Because if we put these microchips in our head, and it turns out that machines don't have the right stuff to be conscious, then we've converted ourselves to non-conscious machines ourselves, (laughs) which would be very bad, very, very bad, because I think what we ultimately value about the human future is the fact that we are conscious beings. It feels like something to be us. We're sentient. So we have the capacity to suffer, to feel joy. Um, You know, it feels like something um, every moment, moment of our waking lives and whenever we're dreaming to be us. I want to run something by you. When I was reading your book, I had the thought when you were talking about the perils ahead, maybe the first generation implants will give human beings enough intelligence, just enough bump in intelligence to be able to figure out how to avoid the mistakes of the far future. Could be a bootstrap effect, maybe. If we get smarter and smarter, we'll make fewer and fewer mistakes about the evolution of AI itself. I I actually agree with that. Um, And, I think that's why it is important to cautiously pursue intelligence augmentation technology and to understand these issues about consciousness. Um, And of course, all this has to be done safely for both the individual who enhances and also to, in a way that creates a, um, you know, a feeling that people do not need to enhance to keep abreast of technological unemployment and whatnot. Um, Yes. Having smarter humans (laughs) would be a good thing. It would help us to keep up with the already difficult nature of deep learning systems, for example. So there's something called the black box problem. You know, it's hard to know what even now um, these systems are doing. And should we, have machines that outperform us in a variety of important domains, and it would help us to keep control of them. Maybe chipped human beings are the only ones who can get a job in the future. And the question is, who gets chipped? Yeah, I'm very worried about that. And, you know, that goes to science fiction. You asked what in science fiction is, you know, coming true. And I meant to actually bring up the important cyberpunk literature where you have writers like Rudy Rucker and William Gibson talking about these kinds of dystopias. I think as we begin to reflect on the role that AI is going to play in the brain, um, you know, the first go-to place for thinking about social justice-related issues on this topic is the literature in science fiction. Maybe smarter chipped human beings with AI augmentation will figure it all out for us. Maybe. Well... <laughs> um, you know, and there may be other 
less science fiction-y ways that we interact effectively with artificial intelligence so as to have AI advisors. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's easy to lapse into thinking the future will just be science fiction-like and not realize that even now, um, there are so many important questions about privacy, um, you know, about algorithmic bias, about... Um, how we can use AI expert systems in collaboration with humans, um, you know, how we can trust what the programs are doing, you know, within computer science, there's important research on program verification, um, you know, the problem. Um, oh, yeah, the makers the of these chips will want to put, the makers of the chips will want to put communication links in there so they can diagnose the problems and they might go foraging around in your brain. I'm quite worried. Um, I mean, so Facebook has its building A where it's already developing um, enhancement technologies. Some of them involve, um, you know, wearable. Um, in fact, they just purchased control apps yesterday, um, which I believe is a watch or some kind of wrist device. I, in fact, I had a great conversation with the person running that lab, Thomas Reardon, about the future of enhancement, you know, and even that even though it's not invasive, poses a good deal of privacy concern when in the hands of companies like Facebook. Sure, sure. <laughs> I mean, we, we all know about what happened with the election and about Cambridge Analytica, that whole mess where our data, you know, was sold. And, and so, I mean, I think it's good to hit the ground running. And, you know, we have to bear in mind science fiction possibilities, but we also have to deal with the here and now. So, you know, that's why I'm doing some work with, um, members of Congress all next year, which I'm very excited about because I have a longstanding interest in, um, you know, several domains of AI. Do you in think that government can properly check and control AI technology going forward so that companies don't run rampant? I mean, are there strong ethical organizations that can sway companies or are we on a path towards just oblivion where companies will do whatever they can do and make whatever money they can make in a sort of a headlong rush into uh, a super singularity. That's what some people are like, worried about. You know, there are good and bad people and good and bad organizations. And I think a collaborative approach with business is so important. And we have to remember that government control of AI technology can also be scary. So I had sort of a weird moment uh, a few weeks ago when I read an op-ed in the New York Times by none other than the general counsel at the NSA on this topic. What and did so he say? He, well, he went through a bunch of very realistic, scary cybersecurity scenarios. And he also pointed out that, you know, Silicon Valley in particular may one day be more powerful than the government. And, you know, I thought, wow. And then when I, as soon as I put the paper down, I just, you know, thought one thing came to mind, Snowden, right? I mean, the NSA is saying this. So what is the natural solution? Um, it, is it really to give more power to the NSA? I mean, <laughs> right? We have a discussion in the Apple community all the time about backdoors. And handing over right. backdoors to the government versus uh, accepting right. the limits right. of of absolute right. security. That's an ethical right. issue we're having right now. Yeah, so that's why it's so important that we have 
a public dialogue where all stakeholders are involved. And I do think with emerging technologies, um, sadly, you know, often our technological prowess moves ahead of our social development. And we learn some really sad lessons in the process of first utilizing those technologies. And we've already seen it with the elections. I mean, who would have known that these internet bubbles could occur where people were being manipulated and, you know, just the whole use of Facebook. And hopefully this will change as we move into the future. And then, you know, we've got to worry about things like these deep fake videos. I mean, I see oh, increasing interest on these issues in Congress, which is really exciting. Should there be um, a whole committee in Congress dedicated to AI or is the science committee enough? Well, they now have an AI bill and there are all kinds of people working on these issues. There's now an AI caucus. All right, and there are cool. Committees that care about these issues. And so, um, you know, if you're interested in this kind of thing, you could go to Politico's website because they just had last week um, something called the Politico AI Summit. And I was on a meet panel um, with actually... Trump's, I think it was the associate deputy of AI. She, she was actually, she was very smart. I really enjoyed talking to her. Um, you know, and, and so there were lots and lots of different presentations and they're all, they're all online. So there's so much to think about, um, when it comes to the development of AI technology and whether to regulate, how to regulate, um, you know, the next several years are going to be really important. Really, really. I agree. Well, thank you so much for taking on this grand tour of artificial intelligence. You brought in some very interesting points, things that we hadn't thought about before. Your book is just amazing. I highly recommend it to the readers. It's called Artificial You, AI, and the Future of Your Mind. What's the publication date? It's coming out in the U.S. in just a few days, so you can already get it on Amazon. All right. And um, the U.K. release date is the 30th of October. And thank you for having me and for your kind words about my book. Yeah, I highly recommend it to everyone. It's an eye-opener, and even though uh, you were kind enough to send me an encrypted PDF, I think I'm going to go buy the hardback and just have it on my bookshelf because it's an important eye-opening book, and it's just glorious. It's fun to read. Uh, you've you've covered the, lots of ground in a very interesting and technical way, and I loved it. So, So what's next oh, okay. for you? Well, I'm writing a book on the future of intelligence next. So I get to talk about different kinds of intelligence systems. Some of them are sentient, some of them are not. And I get to ask, what is the place of human intelligence in the larger universe of intelligent systems? And how far can we take our enhancement efforts? Cool. Will we I be marked towards the beings or will there be limits or design feelings? All right. That sounds fascinating. Limits? augmentation all you science fiction readers and all you physicists and scientists and ai people get this book and and buy everything she writes so so, so tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish oh well just hit my webpage um my webpage is schneiderwebsite.com okay and there's a contact form yeah there's an email right on there they can email me and then um there are lots of videos you know like i have clips from uh, like you, you mentioned, Neil deGrasse Tyson's show and, right. you know, also a lot of other TV shows. I like doing TV. It's fun. 
All right. Well, thanks again for joining me on Background Mode. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to Dr. Susan Schneider talk about AI with John Marchalero on the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.